on the uh, fourth day of a four-day fast, so I don't know if that's going to affect the podcast, but I'm just putting it out there that that's the state I'm in. I haven't eaten since Sunday night. It is now Wednesday late morning. Sorry, it's Thursday late morning, and uh, I'm still fasting, and I feel pretty good. Day three is my experience, usually the hardest. I uh, felt pretty hungry. Usually I, I have a routine. Monday I go running. Tuesday I usually relax, but this Tuesday I went for a hike with a friend of mine up in Kalarish. I posted something on Twitter and Noster about that. Uh, the post came out really well. It was on the edge of a cliff and it was a little scary, but I kind of hung my arm over the edge with the cell phone and it really looks like you could fall off the cliff. So it's kind of happy with that, uh, but it wasn't really that dangerous as it seemed in the video. Uh, and then on Wednesday, on these four-day fasts, which I do every three months, I always do my grocery shop where I just go to like two or three grocery stores and stock up on all of the things I could possibly want to break the fast, which is probably, I don't know, it's a little weird because the point of the fast isn't, you know, to lose weight, although it's great to lose weight. The autophagy, which is good, you know, the breakdown of senescent cells and cleansing of your system, creation of stem cells all that stuff. It's good for your blood sugar. It's good for your immune system. I think it's good for pretty much everything. Maybe. I mean, I could also just be totally wrong about this. Heather was talking about how some of her friends had changed their mind about it, but I kind of think it's, it seems from first principles, like something that people had to do when there was no food and that the human body would probably adapt to use to its benefit. But anyway, uh, you know, it's not just about all the benefits. It's, it's also about the the psychological, spiritual experience of there's food all around you. I cooked dinner on Monday night. I helped Sasha prepare dinner last night when Heather was out. And I sit there and watch them eat. And just the feeling of look at all this food around me and I want to eat some and I like eating and I'm just not going to do it. And... I'm in a state of a little bit of discomfort. Day four is just much easier than day three, but day three, you start to, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the keto flu they talk about, like all of the, you're, you're transitioning from burning sugars to burning fats. Maybe you have some candida, some fungus in there that is dying off of, as it's not being fed the sugars that it's used to. And so it's giving you sort of a brain fog and a feeling of malaise, but, um, but day four, I just woke up really clear and it's almost like I can go, I feel like I could go a lot longer as of day four. Yesterday, I felt like, oh, how many hours are left till I can eat? But today I don't feel like that today. I feel like I'm just going to go about my day, do my podcast. I'm going to do the real man sports podcast with Sislowski in the afternoon and I'm just going to do it. And then when I eat, it's almost disappointing. Like I just gave away this hard earned feeling of just clarity and relaxation that I had earned by not eating. And, and so you're almost like a little bummed to eat today. But yesterday I was at the grocery store going bananas. I mean, I bought, well, Tuesday I went to the butcher and bought steaks and salamis and prosunto, which is kind of like prosciutto, but it's a little different version. And then I got uh, smoked sal wild smoked salmon at the, uh, at the main market and, avocados and this like gluten-free granola 
and tons of berries and I mean, just so much shit. I just stocked. And now today I'm like, yeah, of course I'm going to enjoy eating it, but it's just not as, it's not quite as, you know, like I'm not as lustful for it as I was yesterday. Um, but anyway, it's, uh, I kind of feel like part of the point of the fast is to just observe your habits. You know, you observe that you want to eat, but like, you're not keeling over. You're not unable to do a podcast. At least me, I'm used to fasting. You know, I'm not, I went for a run Monday. That's the first day. I went for a hike Tuesday. I went, you know, carried a heavy bag of groceries, like six blocks. It's actually sweating, carrying the bag of groceries and up the stairs. I mean, I had enough energy to do all that stuff. And so I'm not hungry. Like I'm about to starve to death. Like there's no, the hunger is not, you know, my body has enough reserves to fuel me for much longer than this. So it's not really a life and death thing. Now, obviously like your primitive brain knows that it hasn't had food in a while and it's getting alarmed because it doesn't, you don't know. Humans didn't know if it was a few days where they couldn't hunt something or get something. I mean, they didn't know how much longer it might be. So um, there might be a sense of anxiety around that and impelling you to eat. But in terms of hunger, you're actually not really that hungry. Like your body is sufficiently fueled. I'm able to talk. Maybe I'll play this back or you'll listen to it and say, that guy was out of it. You know, <laughs> he thinks he's fine, but he's not fine. Uh, but I feel fine, actually. I feel relaxed. So that's it. I'm just saying that this is the state of mind in which I'm in when I'm doing this podcast. Regarding the podcast and uh, some of the writing I've been doing, I feel like I'm curating things a little too hard. Like I edit the podcast thoroughly. I may just release this one unedited with the ums and the ahs and the weird pauses and the misspeaking and just release it. It's funny when I do the live sports one with Sezlowski, there's usually not that anything especially controversial in it because it's going on Rotowire's YouTube page. And so I've, you know, I just talk about whatever with him and we go into some topics, but it's not nearly as um, controversial as the stuff I'll talk about here. And I just, literally download it, upload it, you know, download it from the doc he sends me and then upload it to my uh, Real Man Sports site and send it out. And so there's lots of pauses and misspeak and ums and ahs and things. And, and I just leave it. But for this one, because there's so much controversial stuff that I was always editing it to make sure the things I said uh, were things I could defend. You know, sometimes you say something in a discussion or in a rant that feels good to say, but like, if you're really pressed to defend it, you wouldn't defend it. Like almost everything I think that I've ever posted here, I would defend. Now there's things I've changed my mind on where I'd say, oh, I was wrong about that, but I would still defend having said it at the time, uh, you know, with the knowledge I had. So, you know, I never want to post anything that I, I can't defend that I don't feel like, yeah, that's what I really think. So I edit it for this one, but I'm thinking I should not edit as much because it's a, it's a lot of work. It would be easier not to edit it. And B, um, there's something lost. I, even when I do the podcast, I sort of rephrase things three times because I know I can cut out the poorly phrased one. I'm, I'm talking already thinking about the editing process and maybe that leaves something on the table that maybe that, um, makes it a little less spontaneous. So maybe this one I won't edit and I'll do the experiment and you guys can give me feedback and say, Oh, I, that's better. I prefer it. The other ones are too, curated, you know, cause there's like an image you can curate of yourself and make sure that everything seems a certain way. 
And then I realized also, you know, for my uh, Substack post that I was doing, the Chrysalis one, I was, uh, I was, I was really hesitant to send out these pieces until I felt like they were up to snuff. Now, there's two sides to that, right? One of them is you should have standards. You shouldn't just send out stuff you don't believe in or that's kind of half-assed. But on the other, you can be completely paralyzed trying to perfect something. And I read some of them and I'm really satisfied with them. And I read others. And I'm like, this one's just okay. Like this could be rewritten a bit. It's a bit wordy or whatever. Even the ones that I thought I was being painstaking with. And I feel almost guilty hitting submit on the button um, if I'm not 100% like behind it. And I think I need to loosen that up a little bit too. Not because having standards is bad, but because ideas need to get out there. You know, ideas need to be expressed and they're, they don't always have to be perfect. Sometimes you just want to get the ideas out there. And so this is just sort of a internal battle that I'm dealing with. And I'm sort of thinking I was a little too strict. You know, I'm not, what, what am I trying to do here? Right. I'm not trying to make a masterpiece. I'm just trying to get the ideas out, express myself. And uh, it doesn't have to be perfect. I didn't take any notes for this podcast. Usually I'm looking at my Twitter posts or my Noster posts or I'll take some notes. I just felt for some reason just like talking and not really writing anything down. Maybe it's because I'm fasting and I'm lazy, but just feel like talking. One of the things that I've sort of been experiencing the last, certainly the last few weeks, maybe the last couple of months, not really sure, is that everything seems to be happening faster and faster and more egregiously. And it's just kind of hard to process. I mean, obviously there's like the wars going on and one after another, but just things like the prime minister of Portugal just resigned due to some lithium scandal. And, you know, didn't Eric Adams is mayor of New York's like close associates get their houses raided by the FBI or something like there's just like one thing after another is going on Four people at the sheriff's department in Los Angeles killed themselves like separately killed themselves in 24 hours, which obviously that's not a coincidence. They, oh, wow. Four different people just decided to kill themselves. Like either something's coming out that's going to send them to prison for a long time or they were murdered, but they didn't just coincidentally kill themselves. I mean, that's just not, it's just not mathematically plausible. And so it's like, what, I don't even know what it's about. I mean, I have no idea. I have no speculation on it, but like, what is going on? You remember the Hawaii fires and in Maui and the, they were saying it was directed energy weapons and very weird stuff was happening. Some stuff was scorched. Some stuff was untouched. All the theories about that. It's just one thing after another, after another, all the train derailments and chemical spills and that one in Ohio. I mean, is it just that everything that happens is super hyped and in this conspiracy reality that we're in that that everything's interpreted that way because so many of the things turned out to be true i mean we're living through the most bizarre thing and you know I, I saw this uh thomas massey this congressman who i like proposed some i think it passed some amendment to stop funding gain of function research i think there's like a, a new lab in montana fauci or whoever barrick all these guys that Dazak, all these guys that were involved in the creation of COVID are now doing a new lab in Montana. And Massey got some amendment passed that defunded that and everyone's cheering about it. And I'm like, defunded? It's not about who's paying for it, right? I mean, obviously we don't want the government paying for it, but how about prison? How about the electric chair? I mean, I don't, defunding. I mean, it seems like, dude, 
to the, I mean, they created a virus that they used as an excuse to shut down the world. And to the extent that it was obviously exaggerated the effects, but it was still, I mean, I think there was a virus. I mean, I, again, like we, we don't know anything about anything anymore, but assuming there was a virus, I mean, this is, this is electric chair type of stuff. This isn't like defund. So these like victories even are like, what are you, what are you even talking about? How is this even a thing? How are these people even walking around after what they did? And just the absurdity of, of, of a society where the government funded this catastrophic virus, lied about it, covered it up. And maybe the virus wasn't even that catastrophic, but funded a virus that was contagious and apparently killed a significant amount of people. And they used that to exaggerate and kill people with ventilators and, and lock people in their homes. And in, in the UK, it was midazolam, killed a whole bunch of people. And then using those death numbers to then lock people down and, and then deny routine treatments for viral pneumonia like antibiotics and then uh, use that to, to green light an emergency authorized vaccine, which was not sufficiently tested. And to the extent it was tested, they knew that it had serious myriad common side effects and then lied about that and then mandated that. And now, you know, a significant portion of the population has a, a compromised immune system and excess death is through the roof, you know, on all measures, heart attacks, cancers, neurological problems, strokes, and like everybody's just going about their business like, oh, well, you know, this this little issue is really bothering me or the trans thing or whatever. And you're like, dude, like the magnitude of what's happened and the, and the indifference to it and the fact that like facts don't even mean anything. And it doesn't even matter that um, that there's massive undisputed excess death. I guess it may be disputed somewhere, but and it's in every country. You see it in France, in New Zealand, in Australia, in Portugal. In the UK, in the US, in Canada, in Japan, it's like everywhere. You know, you, you see that these reports, and you're like, "How is this not the biggest story?" And I keep going back to that Yuri Bezmenov video that is on YouTube that I post to my Twitter account all the time, where he says that to a demoralized person, facts don't make any difference. And he said he could take people to the. It's in 1984 he did this video to the concentration camps in Soviet Union and show them, and they still won't believe it. He said, until the military boot crashes his balls, until it, they get kick in their fat bottom, will they finally understand the magnitude to which they have been deceived. And I mean, there must be a lot of demoralized people because I just don't understand. I mean, there's evidence coming out about the Georgia 2020 election was ballots are missing or evidence is missing. I mean, all this, I haven't even followed it in detail. I think some of the attorneys resigned who were supposedly defending um, the election process there. It's just, but this is just, uh, there's a million things. I mean, literally every second I see something that is unbelievable and there's all these lawsuits going on right now and Pfizer stock is below where it was before the pandemic. You'd think that whatever a hundred billion dollars or whatever that revenue that they create, that they I wouldn't say created. I would edit this out normally. I'm not going to edit this one. That they um, bribed their way into would secure funding for future, you know, products, and that would be in their coffers, and their stock would be much, much higher than before COVID started. But no, it's lower, and I think that's because the market knows that lawsuits are coming. That basically, that money that they have is is a liability. It's not an asset because it's going to have to pay for those ill-gotten gains. Are going to have to be accounted for in one way or another. 
And then the idea of accountability, I, I'm, you know, there's like two minds that you could be of. I'm of two minds of it really that, you know, on one side, none of these powerful people ever get held to account. There's no reckoning. We're just going to move on to the next psyop and that's that. But on the other hand, there's the sense that, you know, justice moves slowly, but it, you know, the wheels of justice turn slowly, but they turn. And that most of these frauds are being uncovered. Like we do know that we funded gain of function research in the Wuhan Institute. We do know um, a lot of things that we didn't know at the beginning of the pandemic. And we do know, we actually did know that being the pandemic news, we got an article in April, 2020 that I tweeted. And I was like, if this is true, then holy shit, but like it's been true. So that would actually go on the other ledger of, of the powerful never get punished. But you know, Pfizer stock is down. There are lawsuits happening and people are waking up to what's going on. And, you know, you look at Enron imploded and those people did go to jail. Those might've been the last people um, in a large sort of government connected company that went to jail for financial fraud. But um, I, I do think that, that the truth is coming out. We are hearing more and more about this. And, and I feel like on the one hand, like you can hide it only for so long, you can pump up the stock price of Moderna is destroyed also. And so these things, the markets are starting to move. There are, there has been a change in sentiment about this kind of thing. And I do think there'll be a reckoning and I don't know for sure that everybody will be punished. Even the Nazis, not all of them got punished. They captured the ones they could, they, some fled. So I do think there will be a reckoning. And I do think it's starting to happen because the first thing that has to happen is the truth comes out. But will there be a full reckoning? I think they'll scapegoat a few people, throw them under the bus, and some people will get away with it. But it's just like, I'm kind of of two minds. I see the, I see the changes happening. I see the market responding. I see people's attitudes change. I can just post on Twitter now. It's not just because of Elon Musk. All of these adverse events that are happening due to the mRNA, I can just you know, completely mock anybody who still believe, I saw Ben Hunt, this guy, I can't even believe I've ever cited this guy. I shouldn't be like that. You know, the truth is a lot of people are smart in one way they got demoralized and they can't think anymore, but it hasn't, doesn't mean their IQ is low. It just means, doesn't even mean they're not uh, capable of having insight on other topics, but there are certain ones on which their mind is just totally broken. And he was saying like, it's pretty clear that the mRNA shot he didn't say mRNA shot. He said vaccine saved a lot of people and reduced severe severity of illness and hospitalizations. And I'm just thinking, how can you still believe this? I mean, how much information do you have to basically just edit out of your awareness to still believe that those worked? I saw Nate Silver had a similar post a few you know, a month ago. It's like, how can you still be looking at the data of vaccinated versus unvaccinated and think, wait a second, that's perfectly good data and, and not think, wait a second, you know, this is, and, and this is an example of what I mean about talking to the edit. I just edited it because I could take this out, but I'm not, I'm just going to leave it in. And uh, you, you can give me feedback on whether I should just leave all the shit in or just take it out. But, um, but yeah, how can you not look at that and be like, wait, didn't we learn that uh, a person who had had one shot, not two, was still considered unvaccinated. And a person who had two shots, but hadn't had the full 14 days for it to kick in was also considered unvaccinated in the data. And then didn't we also learn that there was a huge difference between died with COVID and of COVID? Someone with a car crash comes in, tests positive for COVID. They mark it as a COVID death. The hospital gets reimbursed. 
and the huge potential for abuse that if you have an unvaccinated person who dies in a car crash test positive, that's a COVID death. And if you have a vaccinated person, you could easily mark it as a car crash death. And that, you know, the incentives were there to do things like that. And then to just look at the data as though it's like, oh, this CDC data about vaccinated versus unvaccinated, or this hospital data, this is completely accurate. And then draw some conclusion about it when you when you know that starting in 2021, there's excess deaths going through the roof that are non-COVID excess deaths. And just it's just amazing the ability just not to even consider what's in front of your face. And and the thing that's so crazy about it is even the most normie, oh, the vaccine saved a lot of people. They know, they've got to know that the Joe Bidens and Rachel Maddows and the media just said, if you take this vaccine, you won't get COVID. And they've got to know that that was a lie because everybody knows highly vaccinated people have had COVID multiple times. So you know that they lied to your fucking face. You know they lied. So why are you not looking into the other claims? That's what I don't understand. I understand trusting the wrong people. I've been scammed before myself. I understand placing your trust in a system that you want to believe in, that you wish things were different and it makes you you know, believe a certain thing and act in a certain way. I totally get that. But then once those people betray you or once that system betrays you and you know it's bullshit, how do you still not investigate and just naively put the stuff out here. I, I just don't understand. And I feel like maybe they're just demoralized and desperate to believe and their tribe is desperate to believe and their tribe reinforces it. They're like, you post something like that and a lot of people like it and say, absolutely. I don't know what these conspiracy anti-vaxxers are talking about. Sure, there are occasional adverse effects for any medicine. This is being blown out of proportion. And it just is a bulwark against any sort of doubt that's so terrifying that might take down their entire worldview. So I guess that must be what it is. And they're demoralized as Yuri Bezmanov says, and, and it doesn't really matter what kind of information they have. They're hanging on by a thread to a sense that it is not as bad as they might think it was if they really examined the way they were treated, the way the whole Western world was abused the last few years. And so I don't know, that's just, that's just part of the insanity you have in my opinion you know i i'll i will read any conspiracy theory pretty much anything i will consider it i will think about it uh, sometimes it's too much sometimes it's just too much fear too much too much too much distrust like there is a sense at which some misdeeds are just incompetence you know some malfeasance is actually just incompetence and and that's a little bit comforting, but I do think that the idea that don't chalk up to malfeasance, what you can explain with incompetence is not serving us well right now as a whole. I think there's a lot of malfeasance. I think it may start with incompetence sometimes or start with genuine um, being misled, but the cover-ups and the violence that people are, the violent lengths that people are willing to go to in order to not have their beliefs disturbed, not have their agenda disturbed, not be shown to be a fool um, are, are real and that's malfeasance. So even if, you know, originally the people who called others conspiracy theorists or the people even mandating the vaccine truly believed many of them that, um, that this was really the right thing to do and it wasn't 
coming from a place of aggression. It was coming from a place of urgency and care. Um, the fact that they have sort of memory hold that and not revisited it in, in given the evidence that, um, that it obviously didn't stop the spread. Um, that to me starts to get to malfeasance. I read a book once called, uh, people of the lie by a psychiatrist named M, M. Scott Peck. I was like 14 when I read it, my mom was reading it and I picked it up and he defines evil. I think I've mentioned this before, but he mentioned Gollum from the Lord of the Rings as the best depiction of evil that he had ever seen in literature, but he defined evil as militant ignorance. So it's not just being wrong or ignorant. It's militant ignorance. It's defending your ignorance, defending your, epistemic foundation, even if it's wrong, even if there's evidence uh, contrary to it all over the place, refusing to see it and persecuting other people who uh, might be offering it up or dissenting from your narrative. And that to me is what we see and what we saw. And he defines that as evil, militant ignorance and I've, and malfeasance evil. I mean, those are synonyms basically. And so I think it's malfeasance. I don't think it's incompetence. I think there's lots of incompetence, but I think there's actual malfeasance. And I feel like the battle in every human being, and, and I have this internally also, is to fight that militant ignorance. Even you can consider yourself awake, but even so you have your worldview and your, your views and we're all sort of emotionally attached to them. And if evidence comes up, that we might be wrong, it kind of evokes an, an emotional response. And the battle, I think, within all of us is when you feel that emotion rising to sort of squelch the dissent or the threat to your belief system and worldview is to just bear the discomfort of that and just consider it. I mean, you don't have to consider every stupid idea, but you don't have to think about it, but just let it hit you and just annoy you and just be in that feeling without getting reactive and fighting it. And I think that like that is going on, you know, in everybody. And so you see this stuff happening sort of on the macro scale and you think, holy shit, like this is messed up, but it's also going on within you. It's going on within me. I know I notice it all the time. Um, and I think the, the main quality of a tolerant person is not, that they're not attached to their beliefs and their worldviews. It's that when they see some evidence or somebody personally contradicting or saying something that contradicts their worldview, their, the direction they go and is bearing the emotional discomfort of seeing that rather than killing, attacking, deplatforming, excommunicating the person who's, who's giving them that emotional discomfort. It's the tolerance is the willingness to bear emotional discomfort. And I feel like in society, you know, we, we used to joke and mock all the uh, participation trophy ethos that was, you know, maybe the millennials, maybe, maybe we even had it a little bit, Generation X, but maybe, you know, some people. I, I don't like to, even though I find a lot of the younger people extremely irritating, I'm sure older people found my generation irritating also. And I don't like to broad brush it because um, I, I have respect for a lot of individual millennials and I, and I feel like I want them to, uh, you know, I don't want them to feel like they're, they're doomed 
because of their how they were brought up. I don't think that's a good. It's, you shouldn't pay. You're like this, you know. So you're fucked. It's better to say like, well, that may have been the environment generally in which a lot of people grew up, but it's, it's salvageable. You know, it's not. It's not a. It's not your fate to be like that. It's just how your dumbass boomer parents raised you. And even boomers, there's many I respect. So I don't, I don't like the generational slurs. Like it's funny, like nobody would get in trouble yet for that. Like you used to be, you can't say something racist. You can't say something against someone's religion. You can't say something uh, anti-gay, but you can totally go after generations. I guess generations are big enough that, uh, that they're not really minorities, but still, I think it, it you don't want to characterize people. I hate it. I hate, um, other day Heather was saying I was an introvert. Um, which is funny because most people who don't, we don't think that, but I am partly, and I'm partly extroverted. It's, I'm a mix. It's not wrong. It's not incorrect to say I'm an introvert, but it's, but it's just, I, I just said, it's just rude. I don't like being put in a box. I'm not a, this, you know, I'm, I have traits of lots of different things. I just, it just any sort of label like that is annoying. But anyway, back to my point, the millennials or whoever, you know, the participant participation trophy ethos, um, and you just see it a lot. Um, and, and even, you know, with the Gen X kids too, like the people, the kids we're raising, it's like they're, they're optimizing for, or I guess they're optimizing for minimal emotional discomfort. And that is creating people who just cannot, who are intolerant basically, because if you can't deal with emotional discomfort, then um, when anything arises in your sphere that contradicts your views, you're going to have to lash out against it because you can't just handle it. And I read a, I read a lot of Buddhist books during college and a little bit after I was just, I don't know, I was just super uh, discontent and I felt like there was a lot of wisdom and solace in, in the, what they were saying. And I don't remember one of them said something like, um, like if you rob somebody of his suffering, you're really doing him a disservice. If you rob a child of a certain kind of suffering, you're, you're damaging them. So if your kid is disappointed because they didn't get whatever it is they want, um, you don't say, you don't try to give them something else or make it better. You just let them be disappointed. Like you didn't get that. Like that, that's too bad. You didn't get that. Okay. It sucks. And sometimes when I say no to Sasha, I'm uh, probably too harsh and I fuck up all the time, but I'll, I'll just be like, cry it out, go to your room and cry it out. I'm not, I'm not sympathetic to this. You, you want this? I said, no, crying about it, it's not going to make it better. And maybe that's harsh, but I do feel like you got to suffer. You didn't get this. Now, obviously if they break their leg, you got to <laughs> take care of it. I'm not talking about real harm. I'm talking about emotional pain that comes from being disappointed, not getting what you want, not having gone to the restaurant that we want to go to not having the friend sleepover that you wanted to, you know, things like that. Um, I think those are just discomforts to be born by a strong person. And this isn't even a strong one. And I feel like maybe you have to bear incredibly unbearable things eventually in life, you know, deaths of family and friends, death of your dog, you know, things like that. Oscar was in the hospital a few days last week and he was all right. He just had, uh, he ate something bad, some bacteria and, diarrhea for a while and he was at his um sitter's place because we were on vacation and he got super dehydrated and um was in pretty bad shape but he got the iv at the she didn't take him to the hospital she probably should have but he got the iv and he's fine now but you know just you contemplate things and um and so you you may have to bear like things that are really hard and most people almost everybody 
basically everybody does. So you got to learn to bear the, the, the easy things first, right? Like you're going to have to lift a heavy weight. You better start training with the lightweights first and, and just be used to like, Oh yeah. Like I believe that, um, you know, the MRNA shot is doing incredible damage and I need to bear somebody intelligent. Otherwise I respect is like, Oh, it's been extremely helpful. I mean, I'm going to question them and be like, how can you possibly think that? But I'm not going to be like, you're a fucking idiot and you should be discredited and nothing else you say will I ever trust. You know, I, I just, I think that's the wrong way to go. I think it's okay to speculate on why they would be discounting all of this evidence and, and actually that's even a bad example because it is pathological in my opinion at this point to discount the evidence that's in front of everyone's face. But if they actually gave a good account, they were like, it's helping people and not because the CDC chart says it, but like they really somehow gave an explanation that was better than mine. Like the explanation that these excess deaths were actually caused by this. Here's the study. Here's why not study and fuck the study, but here's a plausible explanation for why they have increased and it has nothing to do with this. And here's another study of this one country that has just as high excess death despite extremely low vaccination rates or no vaccination rates. If they had somehow come up with an explanation that was better, um, I would have to bear a very severe cognitive dissonance of believing that this was the cause of so many harms for so long. And, you know, it's not just, you know, I have, it's, it's so many first principles. Like not only is it, the thing that changed, but also just pharmaceutical companies have been guilty of, you know, Vioxx and thalidomide and all these horrendous experiments on people that caused so much death and have been sued and had to pay out massive fines already. So it's like the, the idea that there's, that there's just so many levels on which, which my account feels like extremely solid. But again, I don't know for sure. I don't know. I mean, I don't, um, have absolute proof of this. And if somebody were to come, I have absolute proof that the vaccine did not stop the spread. I get that has been completely falsified. I know many, many vaccinated people that caught COVID many times. So that is absolute proof. But, you know, in terms of whether it's killing people, I don't have that same level of absolute proof where it's like, this is just a, well, actually, I think we do have absolute proof that it's killing people, but that it's killing the numbers of people that I think it's killing that it's in the, you know, hundreds of thousands, minimum, maybe millions at this point. That's what I don't have absolute proof of that it killed people here and there. Yes. It seems like people have dropped dead after the shot, like right afterwards so that we know it's killed somebody. But the point is that no matter how um, much I'm attached to this belief being true and how much it sort of feeds into my worldview about what's happened in the pharmaceutical companies, I would have to be open to somebody saying, I don't believe that's true and here's why. And if they had an account that actually was better than my account for explaining, you know, all of the observed phenomena, I would have to change my mind and say, you know what, God, I was railing against this for a long time and I was actually wrong. And I use the example of OJ, you know, OJ was acquitted, but like most people think OJ killed his wife and her friend. But if some dude came out of the woodwork and explained everything and said he did it and found, you know, showed some evidence that had been uncovered and I'd have to just be like mind blown, man. I gotta, I gotta change my mind on this. And so, yeah, I just think the difference between um, being a tolerant, open-minded person isn't that it wouldn't be really 
kind of earth shattering and disturbing to me that I was this wrong for this long, it would be. And I would really grill the person on articulating that case. But if he did articulate a case that was persuasive, I would have to take the L and say, I'm wrong. And it's not about L because it is an L because you are emotionally attached, right? So like if you argue with somebody about something, it's not just sort of this detached, dispassionate, well, here's what I think happened. It probably should be actually, but you get angry when people call you an anti-vaxxer or a conspiracy theorist and you sort of get emotionally attached to winning the argument because they're such fucking assholes and they're so wrong and they're idiotic people and all the things you think that are emotional, right? Like none of that's necessary. The reality is, you know, you think one thing based on your evidence and your beliefs and they think something else based on whatever evidence that they have. And, and that's all that's really going on. And they may be emotionally intolerant and emotionally fragile and have to like insult you when they're confronted with it. Um, and then you sort of get pissed because they started it, right? Like I wouldn't have insulted anybody. I don't think I wouldn't have thought I might've thought they were epistemically derelict, which I've talked about and which I do, but I wouldn't have been like, you're, you know, you're killing people. You're this, you're that. Um, I do think that if what I believe is true and obviously I believe it. So I think it's true. Um, that the people behind the policies are killing people, but I don't think people advocating for those policies or people just exercising the right to free speech, even if it's wrong, are killing people. Um, and so I feel like they started it and then I feel justified. I feel like, you know, I'm in the Israel-Palestine conflict. This is what I'm saying. It's all internal. They started it. They're the fucking assholes. So, you know, I have a right to disparage them. And it's very hard to just be like, no, you're totally mistaken. And I, I do think there is a self-defense thing where you can get a little salty in your language toward these people. But the reality is, well, it's a little different because these people are so, they're so unpersuasive to me that they're not even giving me that sense of cognitive dissonance. They're not even a threat to my epistemic foundation the way I think they might perceive the evidence that you're showing is more of a threat. They just strike me as like, kind of assholes, you know, the way they're, they're just intolerant and, and lashing out. So it's a little bit different. It's more just like, I'm pissed that they're attacking me. I'm not really disturbed by their, you know, the fact that they disagree. Um, I don't, I don't see them as epistemically credible people that they, that their worldview is credible. And I feel that like, when I look at some people who are further than me, you know, that one guy, I find this stuff fascinating. I love this kind of stuff. He's saying that the the Omen movies, which traumatized the shit out of me when I was like ten, I shouldn't have been watching those. But the you know the Antichrist was Damien Thorne. He was a kid. Damien Thorne. He grows up in like the third one, the Final Conflict. And Damien Thorne is DT and has the same letter number of letters as Donald Trump. And then he had all these like numeral numerological coincidences about the birth dates of Damien Thorne and the Trump's birthday and his parents' birthday and all this shit. I mean, it's a bit. The numerology shit is a bit like, come on, like you can probably find some of that shit anywhere. But the Damien Thorne, Donald Trump, I, I kind of, I just love that shit, right? And so he was saying Trump's the Antichrist and Trump is going to basically rescue us from this fake oppression or not fake, it's real oppression, but from this sort of man-made oppression, WF shit. But then you're going to get the real Antichrist. And I sort of like that um, 
you know, it's sort of my same, it was kind of, it's kind of similar to my Elon Musk antichrist uh, allegory, which is that basically Elon Musk gives free speech to Twitter, you know, and maybe Donald Trump will vanquish the neoliberal neocon axis of war. And then everybody's like, okay, great. Like, look at this guy. He just did this for us. And then, you know, especially, I, I don't think Trump, Trump just doesn't seem like he does enough to really be it, but it'd be more Elon, you know, with the Neuralink and now everybody's in this sort of matrix voluntarily entering into the matrix to get, you know, their brain chemicals stimulated and sort of just the equivalent of being on heroin for your whole life um, instead of living in the real world. And, and that this is the real enslavement of mankind. It wouldn't be eat the bugs. Like no one wants to eat the bugs. No one wants to own nothing and be happy. Nobody wants any of that shit. But basically taking people who have been stolen from by inflation and, uh, and, and other means and basically just saying, okay, well, you can't have material goods, but I can give you all of the brain chemicals that those material goods would give you directly. And so why don't you just get into the Neuralink, get, you know, get into the matrix basically and follow me. And that would be the real antichrist rather than, you know, these man-made control freaks. And I sort of find that as like a persuasive um, myth for me, you know, it's sort of a, a more persuasive myth of how it would really go down with less resistance. And you just see your friends and your family and your kids just sort of, you know, voluntarily become addicts to this, you know, already social media, right. is happening and they come addicts to this much more powerful version where you're actually like pumping the, the dopamine from the likes and the retweets and the adventures that you see online right into your brain directly. And you're just helpless to see your kid like sitting there on the pod, you know, 12, 16 hours a day, every waking hour, just on this machine and not going out into the park and throwing a football or going to the beach and swimming and, and doing things like that. And that to me like would be horrendously dystopian and terrifying, but it wouldn't, in a way you're like, well, I can resist, you know, I, you know, maybe that's what the fasting's about four days of, of not having this sort of easy pleasure that we've all grown accustomed to, you know, this cabinet full of food that you can just stuff your face with any, any time during the day to give yourself a little bit of enjoyment. And, you know, I eat healthy food, but it's the same shit. You know, I can get some pecans and fruit and cheese and, and it's delicious and it's, healthy, but it's like, all right, I'm just going to the kitchen one more time to have one more slice of cheese and another apple rather than just like, no, I can just eat a couple meals a day and just fast in between because I don't need this sort of habitual dopamine all the time, even though it tastes really good. And it's, you know, it's not nearly as bad as the processed version of it, but what does it matter? Right. I mean, in the end, it's sort of relying on this dopamine instead of living your life. I mean, I do think there is a, I don't want to, I don't want to go to the, I'm not in, I don't want to take the position that doing pleasurable things is avoiding life because life has pleasure and pain. It has comfort and discomfort and there's nothing wrong with pleasure or comfort. And to the extent that it's part of your life, you should enjoy that. I mean, absolutely. But it's when does the comfort become something that you're doing as a distraction from your work? And I don't just mean like your job, like some what the man is telling you to do. I mean, you're the work of being a human being, the work of being alive. And, you know, that's very nebulous, but the idea that like, 
you know, what are you here for? You know, what is your purpose? Like, why are you here? And, and to the extent that you're just kind of distracting yourself. And it's a very, this is a very delicate area because you don't want to become an internal ascetic tyrant. You know, the Buddha, apparently the story goes, you know, he's, he basically he was a prince. He grew up um, vast wealth and his, his father knew some prophecy that he was going to either be the greatest king or a very important spiritual person. I don't know if it was a very important spiritual person. I didn't think that's bullshit. Like a great king or something else. And so his father uh, took great pains to shield him from suffering. And he had all the food and activities that any kid would want. But one day he saw somebody who was sick and he was like, well, what is that? Sick. He, he wasn't around sick people. He was only around healthy, beautiful, younger people. And then he saw somebody get old. His parents started getting older. He saw an old man, a really old man. And he was alarmed by aging. And then the last thing is he saw someone who had died and then he knew about death. And then, so he said, this is, you know, all the enjoyment and pleasures I have. This is what awaits, you know, illness, old age and death. And so he went out into the woods to find the truth. And he joined this uh, very strict group of ascetics and fasted for, you know, I don't know, months or whatever, and became extremely emaciated and almost died and suffered all sorts of physical ailments and discomfort. And then he, at one point he realized that wasn't, that wasn't the way, right? That was just going to lead to premature death and suffering. And so he then sat down under the banyan tree and just resolved to sit there until he was enlightened. I'm probably leaving out important details, but it doesn't matter and became awake. And he basically rejected the path of just, you know, pain, asceticism, and he was the middle way. And I kind of think that's, it can get very tricky because you can fast and run and lift and only eat, you know, steak and, and become extremely strict about social media and all these other things. And it would do a lot of people a lot of good for the short term. But I think like being that sort of scold in your mind, who's checking off achievements and, and all the patting yourself on the back for all of that. It's just another form of the same thing, right? You're just getting your dopamine from the reverse, just some reverse psychology going on. And so I think it's very tricky to say, you know, don't eat delicious food. I mean, I'm going to eat delicious food, but you, you can sense sometimes where you're just eating just to eat out of habit rather than because you're hungry. Um, and so anyway, in this sort of modern um, world, um, I think like, you know, there, there's a, there's a sense of like, what am I doing here and how do I avoid just getting caught in the trap of just doing pleasurable, fun stuff all the time that starts to become less fun. Cause you're like, Oh fun. We did this cool thing. Oh fun. We ate at this fancy restaurant. It just seems very empty. And, uh, so anyway, I just think that's something I wrestle with and probably a lot of people do too. Um, or maybe they don't, maybe they just are like, shit, if I had the money to do pleasurable stuff all day, I would just do that. And I'd be satisfied. But I don't, I don't think they would. I don't think most people are if they do that. They end up doing that. Anyway, I had a, what was the other thing I was uh, talking about? I don't know. That's probably good enough. It's been long enough. And I don't think I'm going to edit this just as an experiment. I'm curious about feedback. You know, do you care that it's edited? Does it matter that it's got these sort of stops and starts? Anyway, that's it for now. Till next time.